Blog Talk Radio. It's time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646 716 4972. Now here's your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin. Let's begin. It's good to have you with us. I said that in the pre-recorded part, and I mean it. Say it fresh and new every day. It is July 24th. My, oh, my, the hot dog days of summer do continue on. We're Andy and I are located here in central Texas, and Alice is up there in a slightly cooler Cleveland. Sam is up in Dallas. and But I was talking to Beth Ossinger, who was a partner in the business with me, and she lives in the Columbia, South Carolina area, and it was 110 degrees there. So many parts of the country, pretty hot. And the hot topic today is another really hot issue. And we're doing this series, and we're extending it to so all of July, and we're going to go into August because of there's so much on this topic about GSE reform. Last week, we had David Stevens on, the uh, CEO of the MBA, and prior to that, we had Bill Cosgrove on, and uh, Pacific, uh, the CEO of Pacific um, I mean, excuse me, of Union Home Mortgage. And Bill talked about the uh, impact that GSE reform is going to have on independents, David, independent mortgage bankers. And David uh, Stevens talked about what his testimony is, what he kind of gave us a little bit of lay of the landscape. And today we have Jim Parrott with us. Very excited to have him here. Jim is the guy who used to run um, – the show as it relates to the Obama for the Obama administration and what rem, what's going on in housing. He was a, remains a strong advocate. Is very much in the mix mix of what is going on related to housing as a housing advocate, especially on GSE reform. So you're going to see Jim Parrott's name come up a lot as we get this topic continues to head out head. Uh, continues to come to a head of steam or it comes to a head and really we get some policy out of it. So, sorry, I got all kinds of things coming into me. Thank you for many of you who are texting me, say you're enjoying these podcasts. That's what took me off my game there. I parried paying attention to my text messages. So, yes, thank you so much for the encouragement we get from so many of you. We have people dialing in literally from all over the country and this podcast, especially the one last week, got it downloaded just a ridiculous amount of time. So, good to have you with us. Appreciate you joining us. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals, and we are grateful to have you as a listener. Our commitment is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime, anywhere. Now, Rob Crispin, love the Crispin Report. Rob's a good friend. Um, Another consultant in the industry. Uh, Rob has the written format and does a great job. They're widely read. We do the audio format. So anyway, appreciate you joining in. Again, the hot topic is going to be continuing on GSE reform. I want to continue to thank our I want to thank our sponsors. Continue to thank, I always thank our sponsors. ArchMI, the creator of the new innovative RateStar product, as well as Motivity Solutions, providing real-time reporting and dashboard scorecards. Then there's Velma, an efficient 
mortgage marketing and email platform with a CRM uh, technology embedded in there. It does a great job, really effective at getting your word out uh, and your marketing message out. So look at Velma, Velma.com. Simplifile, uh, great to have them always a part of our sponsorship group and lineup. And then there's the Mortgage Collaborative, the power of the network. We have the summer conference. We'll be talking about that coming up in just a minute. Then the, we have the, the Finastra, uh, who is used to be DNH. I'm still getting used to the name. Uh, and they are now going to be one of the largest fintech companies in the United States. Very excited about the merger that they have when they were acquired by Vista, being merged with a former acquisition of Vista. Uh, they bought MySyst, which is one of the largest fintech companies in Europe, buying DNH now, combining the two. These two companies are going to be a real powerhouse, something to be paying attention to. So be looking at what is going to be happening with Finastra. You can go to dh.com and you'll be redirected to the new website. Also, I want to say a special thank you to Andy, to Alice. To Joe, Joe's on vacation this week, so we wish him well. We're going to miss him. Uh, Les Parker, who is with uh, Loan Logics, brings us a macro outlook of what's happening in the markets, and of course Sam Garcia. So good to have all of you here. Let's talk about conferences that are coming up. We have the upcoming MBA conference, the annual conference in Denver, Colorado, October 22nd through the 25th, and we also have the Mortgage Collaborative Conference. Coming in, coming up at the end of August. And so go to Mortgage Collaborative Summer Conference, Google that. You'll get all the information, encourage you to check it out, become a part of the Mortgage Collaborative, and then also get registered for the MBA's annual convention. And of course, if you really want to get the full list of every conference that's out there in the marketplace, go to Sam Garcia's website. MortgageDaily.com. He's got a complete list. It is ridiculously. Uh, you just realize how many conferences there are out there. So, really appreciate it. You know, last week David Stevens talked about the uh, Mortgage Action Alliance and the new app that you can download, which makes it very effective to communicate with your uh, congressman. And I downloaded it and I immediately started working it. I've been doing it. I've been an active part of the Mortgage Action Alliance. But now I have this app, and it's something you can do anywhere. It's a mobile app. So go to your uh, – if you're an Apple user, go to uh, iTunes or to your podcast and – or excuse me, your um, Apple Store, and then download – search for uh, MBA's uh, Mortgage Action Alliance app. It will come right up, download it, and start using it. And of course, you can go over to Google Play and do the same thing there. So a uh, lot of good activity. The MBA is doing some wonderful things for us. We're very grateful for the partnership we have. Now, normally, I would be turning the mic over at this point to Joe Farr and reading, uh, letting him give us an update of what's going on. But I will do my best, Joe, to honor you and what you do. So, MBS Quote Line provides us an update of what's happening in the market. Existing home sales came out this morning. They came out pretty close to what the consensus was, which is uh, 5,600,000. That's just off slightly from the previous month, very close. Uh, the actual came in at 5520000 uh new uh, existing home sales, excuse me. That's where we're at at this point in the year. Um, so at least it's, it's a decent number. Again, a lot of the reason the issues are continued to be housing inventory as we look across the, the country, and uh, many markets are still really starved for housing inventory. 
So for those of you who are renting, this is maybe a good time to be selling it. Uh, although with the supply issues, I continue to anticipate we're going to see continued home price appreciation. So uh, hopefully GSC reform will ad- is it possible that they could, it could address the inventory issues? Well, we'll get some thoughts on that from Jim a little bit later. Last week was another good week for mortgage rates. MBS prices improved about 45 basis points. Mortgage rates fell about seven basis points. On June 27th, comments fired by Mario Draghi uh, about a possible taper uh, from the ECB 60 billion euro buying program uh, caused investors to drive the bond yields slightly higher. MBS's prices fell about a point uh, in overall the following days, the following eight days. Over the next 10 days, MBS prices have almost fully recovered from those losses. Again, the ECB was a big part for the cause of the improvement and the on the markets, and then we're also seeing what's going to be coming out. So there's more talk. We're going to be paying more attention to what they be they be saying. His statement this week um, comes out on Thursday. Uh, Mario Draghi's statement will be coming out on Thursday, I believe, and we'll be paying close attention to it. So the question is, is really, uh, will they begin to taper? Where, where are they going with it? Again, we can watch the markets react. Again, you should have MBS quote line to react. So you can profit from how the markets are reacting. Also, economic data during the week, uh, there was little reaction to the data that came out, mostly uh, below expectations, except the housing starts number. That was, thankfully, a little bit better than anticipated. June starts and permits rose very sharply. So that was a good report uh, on the housing starts. Should hopefully begin to begin to alleviate some of the housing inventory issues. May starts uh, were revised higher as well. So not only did we see June starts, also saw May starts revised upward. There was much more on the calendar this week. The consumer confidence will be coming out tomorrow. We have new home sales coming out on Wednesday. Durable orders on Thursday, and the first estimate, a second quarter GDP will be coming out on Friday. The statement from Wednesday's Fed meeting will be released on Tuesday, or excuse me, on Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, no change in the Fed funds rate is expected. Obviously, we also have some treasury auctions. I always pay attention to how money is flowing in or out of the treasury auctions. And again, this is, we have the two-year, the five-year, and the seven-year on that. So good information. We'll have, we have to get Jim Parrott's comments on all this and what his views are on the market. Uh, he is an attorney by uh, training, but he also has a good perspective of what's going on there. So, Joe, I hope I did your your segment service here uh, of uh, covering that. Again, I highly recommend you go to the website, check out MBS Quote Line. It's a great tool for you to stay in touch on what's happened in the markets. You can do so by your mobile device or on your computer however it works out. So anyway, we're going to be up with Les Parker's uh, macro look of the market in just a moment after this brief break. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS Quoteland delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect. And know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS Quoteline, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS Quoteline today at MBS. MBSQuoteLine.com. MBSQuoteLine.com. 
646-716-4972. The Lickin' on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lickin'. I always appreciate our friends, uh, again, everyone who makes the content of this radio program uh, as rich as it is, and we really appreciate everyone contributing. And your comments come in, keep coming in. I got some more just came in by text message. If you want to text me, you're welcome to. I'll try not to get distracted. You text me at 512-632-2900. Let's go over to Les Parker and see what he has to say about more of a macro view of the markets and what's going on. Les? Thanks, Dave. This is Market Logics Live, sponsored by Loan Logics. Hello, it's good to choose it. Come on, join the joyride. After a brief, bumpy bear ride, the bulls are trying to jumpstart a joyride. The European Central Bank is holding its bond buying program, according to Mario Draghi, its president, through December, but we'll review it in the fall. It's amazing how the ECB keeps kicking the can down the road. The question is, when will risk-off trades become in vogue given declining central bank accommodation? This summer, expect the dollar to bottom and treasuries to return to the bullish camp. These views are my own. Go to LoanLogics.com to subscribe to my daily newsletter. the last of that trailer music. Good job, Les. Appreciate that. A lot of the, the team there at Loan Logics does a good job putting that together. Let's run over to Alice Alvey. Alice, good to have you there. Have you kind of started getting moved into uh, the Cleveland area? Are the boxes unpacked? Or is it ha- happening? Or where are you? Yes, we actually, so downtown Cleveland last night or Saturday night was loads of fun. They actually had a parade of boats in the uh, down the river in front of the flat. And there were, it was Christmas in July, so all the boats, big and small, were decorated with Christmas lights and fun stuff, and uh, it was lots of fun. So, um, yes, absolutely finding our way to have lots of fun in Cleveland. That's a great town, great town, great, great, uh, it is a fun community. Well, let's get an update on some of the things that you're seeing going on. I know uh, there has been a lot happening, but... Yeah, I just can't wait to hear your segment. By the way, you're, a lot of people give you compliments. You do such a great job, Alice, on these. So uh, several of our people are texting in and saying, tell Alice we love her. We're, some of your friends from Detroit are texting <laughs> and saying, we miss her. Send her back. So anyway. Oh. <laughs> nope, I'm not coming. I'll come back to visit. Let's put it that way. So, well, here's the <laughs> yeah. uh, You know, Congress is only here for uh, a few more days before they take all of August off. So, uh, you know, obviously not, not a lot's going to happen here right now. But some of the things that are on the table, um, I think, I know MBA had posted that um, we seem to have gotten something on the flood insurance reform bills by now. But uh, after checking this morning, nothing's been actually voted on. It is on the House calendar. So this is a very big deal because the uh, flood insurance is set by her in September. And, you know, when Congress is going to be gone all of August, that really leaves you with just a couple weeks, the first part of September, before, you know, the money runs out. So um, there have been five or more bills that have been presented. Um, The NBA is really trying to push this. So, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the Mortgage Action Alliance, uh, what I would recommend to folks is if you can reach out and make sure that the um, Congress and senators as well, because there's a companion Senate bill, 
um, is very aware of what needs to happen here. You know, we, we can't go out and penalize certain geographic areas because they are prone to flooding. There's lots of ramifications when you try and, you know, exclude certain groups of people or certain regions. You know, obviously we have to be fair. We understand the fund needs um, and the insurance needs to be made available in the private sector, and that's really where the benefit has to come from. So if we can get, get the uh, fund reappropriated, um, get that renewed for at least six to ten years, uh, I think MBA right now is advocating the six, so we can revisit a few things. Um, but we really have to get this on the table, and we're running out of time. And it is important that we come up with a great way to, as lenders, be able to allow the borrowers to get private flood insurance without having problems if they're converting from the federal program um, to a, a private carrier. And we need that market built up. So take a few minutes to study that and make sure we get uh, Congress to pay attention to it. There was one um, small legal case that I, I ended up diving into because the headline was RESPA in favor of joint ventures. <laughs> We've talked about that on the wow. show a few times. Yeah, well, it is um, a district case. So in Kentucky, and which is part of the uh, Fifth Circuit, I'm sorry, Sixth Circuit. And so when you look at the overall federal circuits, right, so the cases are tried at the right. district level, and then in an appeal they go up that level. And the circuit courts have generally been unevenly split, and it depends what point in history you're looking at to see whether they consider a split of a fee uh, to be a violation of RESPA Section 8 and how they generally will treat joint ventures. And so this particular case was, was interesting to me because uh, they really did, you know, the courts are not going to rule while PHH is, uh, and the PHH case is pending, right? So for right. companies to go in and say, hey, you know what, you can't try my case because CFPB is illegal, <laughs> right? Well, that case is still <laughs> pending. So this particular case uh, was in Kentucky. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't give you the name of the case yet. So it was the borders and borders uh, that they paid kickbacks to a joint venture that they'd set up with nine title companies. So the nine title companies were one called Title LLC. Borders and Borders had uh, law firm had 50% ownership of it, and the actual three prong test that you have for RESPA was met. It did appear that you know in some courts it could look at that this was a violation or met the the challenging that there may have been considered kickbacks. But the companies gave affiliated business arrangement disclosures, so it was clear to the customers. And on the accounting side, everything was done from a distribution based on ownership and not on actual referrals. So the way this was structured, the circuit court ruled and, and set this aside, basically um, partial summary judgment. And I am not a lawyer, so I talked to our legal counsel to get some clarity. And he agreed. It's a small case, but it's really interesting that these aren't getting pushed forward. CFPB goes after a little fish, and it goes nowhere. So that's the good news and the reason I wanted to bring it up. <laughs> so, yeah, that's um, a good point. Fighting out or thinking joint ventures are dead, maybe take a look at this case, find out a little bit more about it, and talk to your legal counsel. So that's my report for today, Dave, and I'll turn it back to you. Good job, Alice. I always love getting uh, your perspective. And again, thank you so much for perusing around the news just to see those little things, to get indication of where the trends may be, especially on the legislative and regulatory front. When are you seeing? Um, how are you seeing 
the various companies that you're talking to. Now you're back and working for a specific company. Several people are asking me, and I've had this request now come in several times. Another text just came in. Ask Alice if she sees the industry different now that she's back in the trenches of it or uh, versus when you were as a consultant and out there providing services. Uh, that question keeps showing up as, you, if, as you're giving your presentation. Do you see the world differently now? Well, I certainly have a, a, diff, a, a focus that needs to be focused on the lender and the needs of a lender, a growing lender, a national lender that cares a lot about quality, you know, cares a lot about being world-class in all areas. And so um, we definitely, what I love is that the company is, um, does take all of that very seriously and, and cares about that and cares about customer for life. So those things I love that are front and center. Um, but I do, I do still see the industry is different depending on who the player is. Uh, so that's the part right. that remains the same, right? Any answer to a question always has to be framed by what are the needs and risk takings of that entity. Um, so I love being here and actually seeing it all on the front lines and unfold. And um, so I think that's the difference well. is finding solutions for one specific segment. Well, it's also nice to know, as we heard earlier when we were talking to Jim before the podcast or the podcast started, and we were all had the mics were all on. And uh, Bill's got a great uh, box seat there, just down from the Quicken box seat for the Cavs. So you're going to get to watch some, hopefully, watch some great games. Your uh, your husband Andy is going to be uh, very happy that you took this job. So anyway, <laughs> greet everyone there. It's a great company and a great leadership, and we're so excited that you're now a part of it. So be sure to say hi to everyone there. Thank you. Folks, we're going to run out for getting a quick word on the Mortgage Collaborative. Again, we have the upcoming summer conference that's coming up. Be sure to um, stay tuned and uh, get registered for that conference. It's a great way for meeting industry leaders in a more in a close-up industry way. It's kind of like the uh, MBA's uh, Chairman's Conference. Uh, it's, it differs in that this one is, has some – they have the collabs that, that they have at the part of the collaborative. Very exciting stuff. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. The Mortgage Collaborative was founded by former chairman of the NBA, John Robbins and David Kittle, and leaders at the forefront of the diversity movement in the real estate industry, Jim Park and Gary Acosta. The Mortgage Collaborative is the nation's only independent cooperative. The Collaborative provides its members the opportunity to meet and form meaningful relationships with top mortgage professionals and leaders in our industry. In a relationship-driven business such as ours, often who you know is as important as what you know. To learn more, go to mortgagecollaborative.com or call Rich Swarbinski at 440-552-0691. The power of the network. So good to have you with us, everybody. Again, this is the July 24th program. We say that because many of you do listen to this on a downloaded basis. So I interject that here and there as we go through the program. Sam Garcia, good to have you up there. You're part of the hot dog days of Christmas. I mean, it's over the summer. Christmas, my gosh. Where's my head? Anyway, was it another hot one up there in Dallas over the weekend? It was, but, you know, we got a little bit of a rain, and it's kind of cloudy now, so it's a nice relief. I'll tell you that. A little relief. Been hot. But there's no relief in the no relief in the headlines. Let's run through those. You do a good job. You got a great website, mortgagedaily.com. For those of you who are not familiar with it, check it out. What you got? What you tracking? Yeah, Dave. The Mortgage Bankers Association in its July forecast predicted industry originations will fall from four hundred and fifty five billion dollars this quarter to three hundred and forty eight billion in the fourth quarter and then 
business will bottom out at $345 billion in the first quarter or next year. So um, mm-hmm. out of all those numbers I just mentioned, MBA lifted its third quarter forecast by $15 billion from last month's prediction, and that was mostly due to a better refinance outlook. And um, Fannie Mae also raised its third quarter forecast uh, by a similar amount with all of the increase coming from refinances. So a um, little bit more optimistic among economists in the industry uh, for refinances, at least for the month. Um, Ellie May reported in its Origination Insight report that 30-year fixed or just 30-year note rates averaged 4.27% in June, and that was down six basis points from May. And, and I'm bringing this uh, particular metric up because you know, I think it's good to always take a look at, as everybody probably knows that's in production, what the lowest rates are today. And, you know, these are based on loans that have closed that LMA tracks through its software. And um, on VA mortgages, rates averaged 4.01% last month. That was the lowest of uh, any of the three major types it, it, um, it tracks. Next were FHA rates, which averaged four and a quarter. And then uh, conventional rates were the highest at 4.34%. So that's the snapshot of at least monthly of where rates stand on different products. Um, Ellie's report also indicated that as FHA's share of the origination market thinned to 22% last month from 23% a year earlier, VA share widened to 10% from 9%. So VA picked up a little bit of share from uh, market share from uh, FHA while conventional remained unchanged at 64%. Um, Ellie said average credit scores rose a point in June, and average debt-to-income ratios were also tighter. So a little bit of tightening by some of the based on the metrics of closed loans and you know how they were compared to a month earlier. Um, our mortgage market index fell 12% last week, and uh, that that index is derived from open closed rate lock volume. And what's interesting is that the, um, while the all the other categories were lower, jumbo rate locks accelerated. So uh, of course, as I've mentioned before, jumbo activity can be volatile. Um, 30-day delinquency was up a basis point in June to 3.80%, and that's according to data from Black Knight. But that rise in the 30-day rate was more than offset by a two-basis point drop in the foreclosure rate, which was at uh, 0.81%. A report from Moody's last week was pretty interesting, got a lot of interest from our readers, and Basically, it said that $91 million was recently withheld from RMBS transactions by Wells Fargo, which is the trustee, and many of us have heard about that. Um, The cleanup calls were to cover legal costs, and Moody's basically warned that the potential for similar moves on other private labels transactions um, has it warning about the increased risks on such transactions. So that'll uh, possibly you know, affect the ratings on some of these legacy deals that were made before the crisis. Um, you know, as I mentioned recent, uh, previously, uh, we maintain mortgage origination tables for about 50 of the biggest home lenders. Um, we do that by quarter. And, of course, we're in the middle of earnings season, which is where we get a lot of those numbers. And the other portion we get from, we actually do conduct a survey for companies that aren't publicly traded, um, and they fill out this, this, these basic bits of data. But... Looking uh, so far at how the second quarter compares to the first quarter, here's some of the results we've tracked so far. Um, Number one, Wells Fargo, they pushed up uh, production 27% from the first quarter to $56 billion. Uh, Chase mostly held steady at about $26 billion. 
Bank of America saw a 15% jump to $18 billion in the second quarter. Over at BV&T, uh, originations were down 13% to $3.5 billion, and Citi plunged 18% from the first quarter to $3.1 billion. So kind of gives you a little bit of an insight uh, to where some of the biggest lenders came in and how they fared uh, to the prior period. Um, refinances of GSC mortgages totaled less than uh, 116900 in May, and that was the fewest refinances of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans since May 2014. So um, seeing some impact, of course, from what's going on there. And that data was reported by FHFA, which is, of course, their regulator and conservator uh, for who knows how long at this point. Um, over at MGI, And about to they- change. Yeah, okay, good, good. Uh, Over at MGIC, their earnings report indicates that insurance written climbed nearly 40% from three months earlier to $13 billion in the second quarter. So they had a pretty decent jump in business. Um, Their insurance in force uh, continued growing uh, most recently to $187 billion. And they had a 40 basis point drop in delinquency that left their uh, delinquency rate at 4.11%. So across the board, uh, they they, uh, hit a home run or a grand slam, I guess we could say, with at least those three uh, metrics. So anyway, those are some of the biggest uh, headlines. We had a a lot of mortgage production stuff. Interesting. Um, It's such a mix. In fact, such a diverse quarter because, you know, some companies you're seeing an increase quarter over quarter or year over year, and other companies um, it's the exact opposite, and some are flat. So it's kind of getting a little more colorful versus everybody running with the pack when this kind of dominate. Yeah. Good stuff. Man, a lot of good information, Sam. Very much appreciated. Encourage people to check it out, mortgagedaily.com. You know, I love the data that you have. The NBA's got a really rich data set. I love what the NBA has, but you're a great complement to it as well, especially, you know, uh, the information that you bring out, the perspective you have is just slightly different. So uh, you do a good job. Check it out at mortgagedaily.com, everyone, or give a, get a hold of Sam at 214 521 1300 or go email him at samgarcia at mortgagedaily.com. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today, friend. Appreciate it so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. You do a great job. Much appreciated. Well, folks, we're going to take a quick ad break. We're going to run over and talk to our friends at David Bolin, hear what he has to say about the merger with MySys after the acquisition by Vista. So, David, take it away. Hey, thanks a lot, David. Finastra is extremely proud to be a key sponsor of the Licking on Lending program. Known formally as DNH, Finastra's global lending division provides end-to-end solutions and innovation to the full spectrum of lenders, including independent mortgage bankers, community banks and credit unions, and even the largest banks globally. Learn more about how you provide an innovative digital experience for your borrowers by leveraging our multi-channel point-of-sale solution, which includes the new MortgageBot Mobile, by visiting our website at finastra.com. The Mortgage Collaborative was founded by former chairman of the NBA, John Robbins and David Kittle, and leaders at the forefront of the diversity movement in the real estate industry, Jim Park and Gary Acosta. The Mortgage Collaborative is the nation's only independent cooperative. The Collaborative provides its members the opportunity to meet and form meaningful relationships with top mortgage professionals and leaders in our industry. In a relationship-driven business such as ours, often who you know is as important as what you know. To learn more, go to mortgagecollaborative.com or call Rich Swarbinski at 440-552-0691. 
The Power of the Network. So good to have you with us, everybody. And we have back from his vacation up in very beautiful, pleasant Alaska, Andy Shell, the prophet doctor, is in the house. Andy, good to have you back. It's such a pretty country up there. You lived up there, so you're familiar with it. But uh, you know that in Seattle is just uh, some of the prettier places to be at this time of the year. Good to have you back, though. Yes. I'm glad to be back. It's nice to be home. And while it's 100 degrees here in Austin and 65 in Anchorage, uh, it's still nice to be back in, the, in the, the bright sunshine. You know, it was pretty a couple of days in Anchorage, but uh, drizzly and, and rainy. Now, Seattle's having great weather right now, so that's a, I'm envious you get to go back so soon. I'll be back there Wednesday. I'll be there up there Wednesday, yes, yeah. So you, you've you know, got, you have, I thought about hot, you've got a great webinar that's doing really well with the MBA. You're doing it in conjunction with the MBA education department. So um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, the servicing webinar uh, was very, very well attended. We we talked about what does it mean to be a mortgage servicer? What does it mean to work with a sub-servicer? How do you know all the rules are being addressed? And, uh, you know, when we were talking about the details around servicing and the number of staffing positions, the number of regulations that you have to address, the number of agency bulletins that you have to address, you could you could just hear the audience gasp because it's it's voluminous, it's expansive, it's like way way harder than people realize unless you're deep in the weeds. So it went very well. We're very excited to have had the opportunity yep. to support the industry doing this. Now we're going to be spooling up our hey. accounting webinar coming up here in a couple That's what, months. Yeah. So you finished you finished the servicing webinar. That was last week, right? Yeah, you know, the, the they only really had room for two sessions, and so we put two sessions into one session last week, and it was like drinking from a fire hose for folks, but uh, at least it was recorded and they have the uh, slides. Oh, so good. Go back and, 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 you know, we oh, put good. a lot of content in the slides so people can really understand the detail without having to take copious notes as we're speaking. So they can go to the MBA website, download it, acquire that, and get that, right? That's right. That's right. And servicing is right. really about process, people, and and profit. It, it's tremendously regulatory focus. You've got to have tons of tons of policies that are driven from the regulatory guidelines, and then a massive amount of procedures on how to do the things you have to do in order to comply with the policy. But it's all about people, process, and profits. And I wanted to just mention about that. Because that that ties back to the in some of my my uh, the work I'm doing on my my schooling is what I call the triangle of success, which is um, at each tip of an equilateral triangle, so a triangle where every angle is the same. The uh, customers, the employees, and profit are all interconnected. You got to be focused on customers. You got to be focused on employees and employee happiness and employee productivity. And you also got to be focused on profit. You can't leave one for the other. You can't focus only on the originators and not on the ops people. You've got to have a complete balance of all of these aspects. They're all interconnected. And the people that that I see on the industry uh, tend to have off um, uh, triangles that aren't perfectly balanced. They tend to be skewed one way or the other, and it all depends. Everybody's different. But it's a great analogy. It's a tool that I have that evaluates where companies are, and it gives you ratings based on where you are in the in the tip of the triangle. But, you know, you got to have all of it. You can't just focus on just yeah. one. And the same thing is applicable in servicing. you got to look at every aspect of this. So good, you know, Andy. That's so at, true. 
sorry, one last point, Dave, and that is that, you know, we, when we run this analysis with the, the, the triangle of success, that the balancing of employees and origination versus operations, customers, and profit, we, we often see that operations te- people are, are really poorly treated. When you do surveys of operations people, it's like the originators treat them like crap, and, and you wonder why mortgage companies have 30 or 40% turnover. It's because we're not nice to each other. All we need to do is read the book, Everything You Need to Know About Business You Learned in Kindergarten, you know, flush, <laughs> lift the lid, brownies <laughs> in the afternoon, and go cut lines. And be nice <laughs> to each other. Yeah, so, so, yeah. interesting concept. <laughs> That's funny. It's good. That's good, Eddie. I appreciate it. Good job. I think you do an awesome job of talking about this and these webinars. I love the MBA and your partnership that you do with them. You want to get a hold of Andy? Get a hold of Andy at andy at mbs-team.com. He'll come in and help you with what's ailing your bottom line and also help you with many other aspects of your business. So appreciate it. Folks, we're going to be right back. We've got Jim Parrott. On the batter's box, he's going to be coming in, talking to us after a couple of ad breaks here. We're going to be talking about GSE reform, continuing our dialogue that we've enjoyed for the last couple of weeks. Folks, we'll be right back after this brief break. And from one of our sponsors, ArchMI, Shawnee. Thanks, David. Glad to be a sponsor. Spring home buying's underway. The supply is tight and interest rates are rising. Are lenders ready to compete for purchase business, or will they get left behind? ArchMI RateStar is the best way to stay aggressive and stay ahead of the herd. Use our risk-based pricing program to assess individual loan risk more precisely. With RateStar, lenders lead their market the way ArchMI leads the MI industry. Lead with us. Good job, Shawnee Hanadel. We appreciate it. She's the director of marketing there. Does a great job. Also, we have the KPI of the week, the key performance indicator from Motivity Solutions, John Maynell. Vice President of Customer Satisfaction there, Customer Experience. Uh, John, what you got for the KPI of the week this week? Thank you, David, very much. Great to be here, as always. And this week, we have another underwriting-focused key performance indicator, and the KPI is Average Resubmits Per File. This single measurement can not only help lenders develop consistency in underwriting and optimize departmental processes, it can also guide business users to examine contributing tasks and processing that affect this number. KPIs in practice, and you might say by definition, are constantly on display and updated in near real time, making it much easier to pinpoint however many friction points may be combining to produce a given effect like number of resubmissions, which can also vary by product type, another aspect that the KPI can uncover, demonstrating once again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, Dave, I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much again. Thank you, John. Now, Motivity is a part of the Black Knight family. Great products, great services. Check it out. Folks, I am excited to have our next guest join us, uh, Jim Parrott. In fact, it was Dave Stevens I reached out to after his really good comments last week and asked for who he thought would be really uh, that could really contribute significantly, advance this conversation. And he gave me the name of Jim Parrott. Uh, I've known of Jim. He's an individual that should be known to all of you. Uh, he was an attorney. He practiced. He was the uh, counsel to uh, Secretary Sean Donovan of HUD for a period of time. Uh, you know, he is currently the Urban Institute uh, or a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. He also has his own consulting business. 
But, you know, like Jim and I are talking, he's really the guy behind uh, all that's been going on with the White House, the Obama administration on GSE reform. He's a real advocate for housing finance issues. No wondering, no wonder that he and David Stevens are such good friends. Again, last week we had thousands upon thousands of people listening to the podcast with David Stevens and the week before with Bill Cosgrove. And today we're honored and blessed to have Jim Parrott here with us. Jim, thank you so much for taking time at such short notice to come on in and here be with us. My pleasure, Dave. It's good to be with you. Well, it's good to be here. One of the things, Jim, first of all, let's, let's cover a couple aspects, just so for those that do not know who you are. Uh, if you could just give us a little bit of a background. I mean, having been a part of the uh, Obama administration was got to have been an exciting journey. We'd love to hear a little bit about that, as also some of the other things that you're doing. Sure. So I um, joined the Obama administration about the time Dave did, actually. I started out, as you said, as a uh, a counselor, a senior advisor to Secretary Sean Donovan over at HUD, um, mainly focused on housing finance issues, so one of the issues that, that, um, that you're focused on. And I started the same week Dave started over at FHA. I was over at, at HUD for about a year and then plucked up out of HUD to sort of run housing policy more generally out of the White House with uh, the National Economic Council. So I was there for um, the first term and in the very beginning of the second term, and then um, after my family and I had had enough, we, uh, we we came back down the Chapel Hill, which is where we are now, exhausted. But uh, yeah. it's a pretty amazing experience exhausted. to be in the mix, especially during the uh, yeah, crisis got- when it was so crazy. Well, you and David sat there during the liquidity crisis where warehousing was looking like it's drying up. Uh, David has told so many of those stories on this radio program, and uh, uh, just really grateful for your service because it is a sacrifice, and your family sacrifices as much as anything, Jim, uh, to these kind of things. So thank you for what you did. It was important you were there during a very critical time, and it also gave you a unique perspective on the hot topic of GSE reform. What I would like to do, we've, we've David positioned it well last week of what's going on, um, kind of what's on the house and the hill, what's happening there, uh, giving us a little bit of idea of the, the temperature. Uh, Bill Cosco talked about the independent mortgage bankers and how this has really got to happen. It's a real, uh, really critical initiative for independent mortgage bankers. But what I'd like to do is have you look, help our listeners look forward into what could happen with the various options out there. So if you could, first of all, outline for our listeners, what are the various ones that you think are the most credible initiatives, how they complement and conflict, if you could. And then after that, we're going to look, if you could get into comments, forward-looking comments about what these various initiatives, the consequences of these various initiatives. So let's start by outlining what are the initiatives that have your attention the most. Yeah, so let let me start with – where it seems that the policymakers are likely to settle, uh, just big picture-wise, and then I can talk you through um, how that's likely to play out, sort of debate-wise, over the next six eight months, because um, it, it could be a pretty interesting, um, a pretty interesting stretch. So uh, my sense is, given the politics that are involved here um, and, and the facts, the fact that we have uh, Republicans controlling both uh, the executive branch and uh, the legislative branch, we're, we're pretty likely to see reform focus on um, how to create uh, a multi-guarantor uh, system. So in essence, how do you bring other guarantors into the system to play the role that Fannie and Freddie play today 
in a way that's competitive with Fannie and Freddie. So I think most So let me, if I could interject right, right there sure, sure. for a second. So both uh, Bill Cosgrove and Dave Stevens both said change is coming. It seems inevitable, and that's what I thought I just heard you say. And I really want to underscore that for our listeners. Change is coming. There is going to be, no doubt, some type of GSE reform, and it is critical that we all understand what these issues are. It's not a, that's not what's being debated. It's which one of the reform items or which one of the reform initiatives are, is going to be the, the one that we're going to end up with. So, so I think that's a really important point I want to underscore. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but go ahead and finish Yeah, no, that's thought, okay. I mean, it on. is uh, underscore once again. It's, uh, I think it's a question less of – whether, but when and what. Uh, so, yeah. you know, whether Congress can can uh, prove itself functional enough to handle something as complicated as this um, in this Congress uh, or, or in the, the, the next Congress, the one after that, at some point um, we're going to see reform, mainly because the status quo is, uh, is not a sustainable system. It may feel um, to many that, um, that that are interacting with Fannie and Freddie in, in the ways that they did maybe 2005, 2006. It may feel familiar enough to seem sustainable, but for a whole bunch of economic and political reasons, um, it's not. So whether it's this Congress or the next, at some point we're going to see uh, an overhaul of the system. And my sense is, um, and I'll talk in, in a minute about the political sort of process of how you know how the next six, eight months will unfold so people have a sense of uh, of what's coming and are caught off guard. But my sense is on the substance, um, the, the model that Dave explained last week, the NBA's model, which is a, a multi-guarantor model, where you've got um, many uh, Fannies and Freddies competing uh, over the business that the duopoly has had to date um, and probably issuing through a single securitization infrastructure that's probably utility, all of which is exactly what right. the NBA has proposed. My guess is at a high level – that's the world we're going to reform into. The question is going to be how, what the transition looks like. How do you make sure you've got multiple guarantors? The, the, there's some mechanical and structural questions like that that policymakers are going to have to wrestle with. But at 30,000 feet, uh, my sense is that's the, the sort of picture of reform um, that we're likely to have. But uh, do you want me to walk through the, the, the politics and what the next six, eight uh, months might look yes, like? Yes, please. Think, please. Uh, okay, great. So – because um, there's a lot of uncertainty out there uh, from a lot of lenders and other stakeholders um, because they see this just a high level of dysfunction in Congress, um, and, and it's a cloud that sort of hangs over you know, their business and the system generally. So uh, when I get a chance to try to um, lend some clarity to all that, I, I try to. Uh, so uh, the Senate Banking Committee is what's going to have to pass a bill to get the dialogue going on this. And my sense is that we'll see the Senate Banking Committee uh, release some legislation in this space sometime in the next you know, six months, maybe the beginning of next year. Um, and it will likely be you know, a multi-guarantor kind of model, like I, I just mentioned and like Dave described out of the NBA. Um, and the way it'll play out, which is, which is interesting, but a little predictable, I think, you've got um, a pretty strong majority uh, in the banking committee, uh, and it's a bipartisan majority, it's not just Republicans, not just Democrats, um, that feel strongly that uh, reform uh, is needed, that the duopoly we've got today um, isn't healthy for the system over the long term. Um, it it uh, contributed to a great deal of damage in a crisis, and we shouldn't leave ourselves vulnerable to it going forward. So there are a lot of folks really lined up in the banking committee to advance this 
ball. Um, there's some uh, on the left in the committee. So some of the progressives um, who held out last time we tried to do this um, and are reticent uh, this time um, are pushing back a little bit against the notion that we need reform, mainly um, in the belief that the status quo that we've got today uh, is really preferable to anything they're going to get um, uh, in negotiating within the current banking committee or Congress generally. So their comfort, the level of comfort with the status quo and their uneasiness with what might replace it makes them um, a little antagonistic in the sort of broader reform drama. And this is very similar to the dynamic we've had for the last five, six years, and one of the reasons why we haven't actually seen reform. It's this comfort with the status quo and this discomfort right. with the unease with the uncertainty around reform. What's different this time, though, and people need to really understand this when their eyes glaze over when we talk about GSC reform again, um, is that where in the administration, uh, in the White House last time around, so the seat that I was in, we were relatively um, almost passive in the way in which we led in this process. We let Congress lead. We're highly deferential to how Congress played this out. Um, wanted to wait and see how they, you know, uh, where they drove things. Um, didn't want to rattle stakeholders that weren't in favor of reform. And so we didn't. Um, we weren't really weren't really willing to break eggs to, to make the omelet. I think this administration. Yeah, it's highly unlikely to be as passive over this. So my sense is <laughs> once the SEC reform yeah. gets going uh, for real, so once the Senate Bank Committee gets a, a bill on the table to debate, my sense is this administration will be much, much more aggressive. And I think the way that they're going to be aggressive, and this, is, this will affect everybody that's listening to this podcast, um, is they will appreciate that um, the reason why it's hard to get some progressives and other stakeholders uh, behind reform is this sense of security with the status quo. Well, the status quo is, is highly dependent upon um, how the Treasury Department and FHFA uh, regulate the space as we know it. Um, Mel Watt steps down, Mel Watt, the head of FHFA, the regulator for the GSE, steps down in January of 2019, you know, if he doesn't leave before. This administration gets to pick his successor. Uh, and so once they've got their successor in place, um, then between this Treasury Department and the new FHFA, they can completely change the status quo as we know it. They could lower loan limits. They can e increase G fees. They could dramatically pull back the government's role in the space. And so I think the administration is probably going to signal an openness to those kinds of moves, um, if nothing else, to get those who are overly wed to the status quo to rethink their negotiating positions. It feels to me like um, we're in a pretty different world once the GSE discussion gets underway, um, and, um, and, and people will probably be more focused and interested in outcomes, because I think this administration is going to make it clear that yeah. reverting back to the status quo is, uh, is no longer an option. Well, I think you raised the, the, the progressives. You talked about progressives, and I think it's important that we describe what you mean by that. Those, if I understand correctly, and based on the comments David Stevens made last week, progressives are those that say we want government out, period, out of housing finance. Is that the is that the extreme part of progressive? Does it represent? Oh no, you got the wrong. Or? You've got the wrong end of the political spectrum. So that's the gentrifying. Okay. Uh, oh, that's the gentrifying. So okay, okay. Very conservative. There's a group of mainly yeah. House members, although there's some in the Senate. Um, a lot of think tank folks. This is the sort of thing that makes more sense in grad school seminars than it does uh, in the practical world. Um, uh, there are some folks. 
uh, especially in the House, that think that having the government backstop the housing finance system at all uh, distorts the market, increases taxpayer risk, creates all kinds of bad incentives, uh, and they think that's what brought the housing finance system down in 2007, 2008. And so if they could wave a magic wand, um, they would pull the government that's what, okay. system so out. So it's really luckily, his group. that is a small minority, and there is no way on God's green earth, at least anytime soon, uh, that we see that kind of legislation passed because they don't have enough um, right. juice, in effect, to get it passed. The other end of the spectrum, so that's the right end Which of the Which is spectrum. the progressive the, side. The progressive yeah, on the, side. On the, the left end of the spectrum, what you've got – um, is uh, a, a mix of folks, some of whom are in Congress, um, some of whom are in the Senate, some of whom are sort of stakeholders, um, community advocates, uh, consumer advocates and the like. In their view, um, it, it's more of a political economy view that uh, with Republicans in charge of, of all the relevant levers right now, um, their concern is that, um, that whatever we end up negotiating out of Congress and, and having the current president sign into law, will be something that is worse for underserved communities, worse for poor people oh, okay. um, than the current system. And so they would rather just keep anything from happening until um, leadership changes uh, and we've got, for them, more reasonable people uh, to negotiate with. And so what, what the current administration is likely to do um, is to say, um, I'm sorry, the choice isn't between uh, the status quo as we have it today and what is now on the table of the Senate Banking Committee. The choice is going to be what's on the table of the Senate Banking Committee um, and uh, a, a very conservative drift of the status quo because we get to control the status quo and we won't let it stand. So I think that's how it's going to play out. Okay, good. So those are the, the kind of the two bookends, you might say. Is that the best way? The yes. Progressives that are wanting to make sure that we have a solid housing finance system to support all the, the emerging markets and the, in, in the underserved individuals and in we want to see enter the market. And then we have Jeb Henserling says, get the government out totally. So that's, that's really good to kind of clarify that. Thank you so much. Um, I want to get into looking forward, but before I do, I want to first of all go to Alice Alvey, get her comments in on this and questions, and then we'll run over to Andy. And then, uh, gosh, I can't believe how fast this program goes. Then we'll wrap up with kind of giving us a look forward. What are the things that – what are the opportunities is what I'm looking for that emerge out of uh, some of the initiatives. So before we go there, Alice, take it away. Thank you. So, uh, Jim, very insightful. Uh, so as you described uh, the dysfunction there that we're faced with, um, do you <laughs> – So real. You know, yeah. So, the, I mean, then the strategy then. So is MBA and what we've been talking about here, it, it sounds like that is a little bit of a middle-of-the-road strategy that we should be able to get some kind of uh, multi-guarantor reform out there. So uh, I guess I'd like you to expand a little bit more on that. Does, does that seem probable that we can keep a certain type of Fannie and Freddie and potentially try and open up the private market? Yes. I think the needle to be thread um, is how do you take the, the infrastructure in the system that works well today? Because as we know, and everybody on this call knows a lot of what we've got in the current system works really well. And what you do not want to do uh, is throw the baby out with the bathwater and right. just for the sake of change uh, completely upturn um, much of the system, which is healthy and functional. So how do you, how do you make sure you hold on to what works um, while changing structurally what hasn't worked? And so what that means, and the NBA I think is 
um, his, his thread the needle well with their model. What that means, I think, in practice is um, how do you take Fannie and Freddie and the infrastructure they've got um, uh, in the market today, um, and, and rather than winding that infrastructure down, how do you how do you make sure that that other uh, new entrants have enough access to that infrastructure that they can compete? Because obviously, if we just open the doors to competition and said, "All right, whoever wants to come in and compete with Fannie and Freddie, have at it," um, <laughs> I think few would uh, would rise to that call, given how dominant Fannie and Freddie are. So the question is, how do you make it easier for new folks to get into the market? Uh, to compete with them. Um, and then the second question is, uh, how do you make sure that you've got enough uh, genuine private capital ahead of the taxpayer's risk uh, so that conservatives especially feel more comfortable that what we've got is a genuinely private market, not just a you know, quasi-governmental market uh, in which the taxpayer is taking uh, the lion's share of the risk. So how do you hold on to what works in the current system? Um, and and uh, in essence, um, overhaul what sits at the foundation of the system, this duopoly, um, in a way that is not too disruptive um, to uh, the system itself. Does that make sense? Does that resonate at all? Yes. So I guess the the question is, how do you get into the, you know, has anybody taken the steps to get into those details to really be able to iron that component out? Because that, to me, sounds like thousands of hours and pages of work to really, you know, get it so that it can function and work. Yeah, I mean, luckily they have. I mean, a lot of a lot of us have been struggling with this um, for uh, the, the what feels like an interminable period of, of reform debate. Um, Dave's Dave and the NBA have, have done a good job of mapping out what transition would look yeah. like. Um, Mark Zandi and I have written a couple of papers on on the same. And, and one of the other features that makes this a lot easier, which is underappreciated, is the current FHFA. That is the current regulator regulator slash conservator. Um, has already begun to build out a securitization platform that ultimately could work as a utility for the market and make it easier to compete with Fannie and Freddie. And they're already requiring Fannie and Freddie to share much of their uh, credit risk with the market. So those two steps are teaching us a great deal about what transition to a new system might look like um, and how to design through legislation uh, the additional steps that we need to add on to the regulatory steps that are already underway. So it's an incremental process. Um, that will move slowly, but that already has a great deal of thought behind it. Let's get over to Andy. Andy wants you to be able to get a few questions in here that come to mind. Hey, Jim. Thanks Thanks for being on the show. I've, I read your paper on common securitization platform. thought it was very, very well written. And I've got uh, two quick questions. The first one is super easy. Were you at Columbia Law School at the same time Obama was? <laughs> no, I, I am uh Fortunately, younger than the uh, former president, so uh, so I, I have no overlap with, uh, with the former oh. president. Although I'm just oh, okay. about as gray as he is, uh, I'm afraid. Yeah, that, well, the White House will do that to you anytime. It will. <laughs> so here's the thing about here's the thing I've been worried about and still remain concerned about, and it's a bit of results in cognitive dissonance because we're saying opposite things at the same time and believing both to be true, and that is that. We, on the Republican side, we want to f- have this laissez-faire capitalism where, you know, markets to drive um, and competition drives outcomes. But at the same time, we say from the MBA's perspective and Dave and mine analysis, we want there to be a level playing field among the participants, the mortgage lenders, so not just the new securitization entities who could who could spawn from this 
um, common securitization platform, but we want for the participants in the market to not be disadvantaged because a, a hundred billion, uh, a ten billion dollar originator gets a better G fee and a better market than a hundred million dollar originator. So we want there to be restrictions on the ability to reduce G fees by these private participants, but at the same time, we want for the private money to be in front of the taxpayers' money. And that's where I get my cognitive dissonance. So how do you reconcile those two sides? Man, it, you picked up on exactly the tension that makes GSE reform so difficult. So, um, but, but everybody who sits around the table to have this debate um, needs to set aside the notion uh, that this system, this market that we have, will ever be um, you know, a libertarian, no-holds-barred, everybody run in whatever direction they want sort of market. It just doesn't. The TBA market wouldn't work um, adequately. Um, you wouldn't have a level playing field because those that have the greatest access to cheap capital will come to dominate it quickly. You'd have a few too-big-to-fail institutions, in essence, stepping into the shoes of Fannie and Freddie as their successors, and we wouldn't have solved uh, anything. So you, you cannot um, approach this with the assumption that the government just needs to get out of the way and let us uh, compete because – um, there, there's too much in the system um, that the government has to do by way of support to ensure that uh, you've got a level playing field, to ensure the TBA market continues to work, to ensure that we have, you know, widespread access to 30-year fixed-rate lending. There's just – this is a, a unique market, uh, and the role of the government is extremely important uh, in ensuring that it's adequately competitive. And I realize that sounds contradictory, but in this market, um, the role of the government, if it's done right – um, should maximize competition um, because if it didn't play the role we need in it, um, a few behemoths would come in and uh, and basically wipe out competition with um, you know by, by taking on a dominant share of the market. So it's extremely important that we figure out the right balance between getting the government to play um, a sort of rule maker right. role in all of this and. and I think, to build out a little bit of the infrastructure, the securitization infrastructure, uh, put it into a utility of some sort so that it's much easier for smaller players to come in and, uh, and compete with, uh, with Fannie and Freddie. So I think at the end of the day, the government has got to play um, a relatively involved role in the space, um, and, and it's, people should get over the notion that uh, the, the alternative to having the government active in this space is open competition. The alternative of having the government active in this space is a couple of too-big-to-fail institutions uh, own it. Um, and I'm not sure anybody yep. other than a couple of too-big-to-fail institutions Perfect. want that outcome. Perfect. We've been well, Jim, there, I done that. So. I know you want to go forward-looking in, yes. in, in Jim's paper. He asked the question, why do we need a single uh, platform? Yes. Rather, Why not just use Jenny May? So he, he addresses that question. And that was the question I had, too. Why not use, just use Jenny May? Do uh, you want me to answer that here? Yeah, yeah if you got a second, go ahead. I mean, we, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, sure, if sure, you don't sure. mind going so, a little bit well, over, we're going to continue on a little bit here. So, yeah, please do. I mean, that's a great okay, question. Okay, yeah, okay. Well, one, so um, Andy's alluding to a paper that I put out um, in the last week, I guess, uh, that's called Common Securitization Platform, I think a cornerstone for reform or, or something, something like that. I would, if you're interested in this question, Google, uh, Google that, my last name, and I wrote a whole section on um, how Jenny is, uh, why Jenny's differences in, in their business model from Fannie and Freddie's 
make it um, uh, not the right avenue for reform. And the, and the fundamental reason, not getting too much into the wonky mechanics, which are in the paper, um, is the way the Gini platform is set up, it's set up for issuers who are not taking on any credit risk, right? So if you're going through the Gini platform today, you're going with FHA insurance, USDA insurance, VA insurance, so government insurance. So you, you're issuing on this yep. platform in a way that, that doesn't require you to worry about credit risk all that much because the government's got to worry about it. As a result, Gini doesn't really collect uh, credit-relevant information. They're just not set up to help issuers uh, think about or manage uh, the credit risk that they're pushing through Gini. As, as we know, Fannie and Freddie uh, manage a great deal of credit risk, and so the, the common securitization platform that Fannie and Freddie are building um, does collect all of that loan-level credit risk information, you know, credit scores, um, uh, DTIs, that sort of thing. And so in the future system, if what you want is a platform that allows other issuers to compete with Fannie and Freddie, you need something that is well set up uh, uh, for issuers that want to take on credit risk like Fannie and Freddie. And Jenny today is not set up that way. That's exactly what the platform uh, that, that Fannie and Freddie are building is set up to do. So it makes for a more natural fit as a utility for something that would allow folks to come in and compete with Fannie and Freddie. But it's a very wa- there's a much wonkier answer, and if you're interested in that, then, uh, then I would suggest uh, <laughs> Google tracking down Google, Google that document. We're, we're over schedule, but I do want to get this comment because in your comments about forward-looking, if you could just say what does our future look like under the MBA's program, just pick that one, the multi-guarantor model. I like it. It's a utility model. There's just so much uh, critical thought and participation that's gone into that, and I hope the administration gets behind that one. But if you could talk what does our future look like if that model uh, is the one that we are going to have and see moving forward. Yeah, so I, the way I would think about a world in which we've got that model is you probably have – you know, five or six uh, Fannies and Freddies. So Fannie and Freddie are still in the mix, but they've got, you know, three or four competitors uh, competing for, you know, lender business, frankly. Um, and they will compete over uh, service. You know, what, what, um, what you know, how do they provide a, um, a, an underwriting service that makes it easy for lenders uh, to interact with them in a way, you know, whether it's through the cash window or one-off um, loans or pools of loans, um, in ways that make the lenders experience um, easier, more profitable. Um, they'll compete on price. They'll compete on niches and credit markets. Um, and so ideally what it will mean is that lenders will have more choice and more competition um, in those that are, are, are buying their, uh, their loans. And so all of that, if you're um, even mildly free market oriented as I am, uh, is a good thing because from that good things will flow from competition uh, the service and benefits to, to lenders um, should go up. It should also mean that you see uh, more creative ways of expanding access to credit um, because that's something over which these guarantors will also uh, compete. Um, so my sense is uh, it will also unlock the, um, the, the sort of operational dynamism that you're seeing in, um, in the housing finance space from people like Quicken. My sense is you'll see more of that um, in your interface with guarantors and issuers uh, because that'll be a way in which these guys compete with each other. Um, so if this is done right, you'll see uh, a better experience for lenders. Um, you'll see more lending for uh, sort of critical consumer groups that are otherwise perhaps left out. You'll see better pricing. You'll see all the benefits that uh, that, that flow from competition. Uh, knock on wood. And, and that, 
and that yeah, not good. What is right? It's, and, and navigating these waters is not going to be uh, uh, easy because there's many competing interests in this, and I can't wait. In fact, we have several people have texted me say, "Could we get Jim and Dave Stevens?" Uh, on the program together, there's a lot of questions that are coming in. They would like to have you both answer and like to hear, see how you uh, respond off of you guys, off of each other. I think you both are very closely aligned, at least it looks like. Uh, a lot of people are writing in about the Jenny May right now, and it's a great segue because we've got Jane, uh, Joe Murin, the former president of Jenny May, coming on next week, along with the former uh, NBA Chief Economist Jay Brinkman, both of which are good friends, and Gary Ort. We've got a new entity going, uh, and we're going to showcase them on this uh, podcast. We'll get interesting in Joe's, Joe's comments. We now have put together a board of advisors, and Joe and Jay and Gary are on it. So we're going to be showcasing that. And I was really impressed on a, one recent board meeting at a leading bank uh, that, that Joe's comments on this. So uh, there's so much on this topic. Uh, Jim, we've just got to have you back. And I think if it's possible, let's get you and David Stevens on on the panel together because listenership is through the roof on this. Obviously, it's grabbing a lot of attention. And I think the dialogue and the context which you guys uh, provide do way more than what the written documents can. They're great, but it's this kind of discussion and the format that this radio program provides or this podcast provides is so critical to helping understand some of the dynamics. So thank you for taking the time to be here today, and I uh, would love to have you back. My pleasure, anytime. Although I, I will warn you that Dave and I both talk too much to both be on the same show at once. <laughs> but with that caveat, anytime. <laughs> well, I respect both of you, and we're grateful for both of your service to this country and to our housing finance system, and uh, we'll be honored to have you both back, and we'll just be happy to sit and listen. Have a blessed one. Thank you so much, everybody, for being a part of the program, and tell others about it. You can go online, download these series, and uh, be able to listen to them anytime. Go to Lickin' On Lending.com. We're releasing our new website this next week. Got a few things we have to finish up. We'll be releasing our new website. And you'll be able to not only listen to the whole podcast, but you just go in and listen to just the hot topic or just to Andy's comments. We, the way we've structured the new website, it's really cool. Look forward to having you back here next week. Remember, Joe Murin, Jay Brinkman, and Gary Ort will be on. We'll be talking about GSE reform and continue the discussion. Have a great week, everybody. Look forward to having you back here next week. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin' of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.